1: You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Melissa. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead. Two meetings of high importance are happening in Washington over the next 24 hours first major bank CEOs gathering starting today. The fate of First Republic reportedly front and center. We'll bring you the headlines as we get them. Then of course there's the most complicated and the most high stakes Fed rate decision in recent history. Hike, pause, or pivot? What takes priority? The inflation fight or market stability? One of our guests says inflation and the Fed should keep hiking but Paul McCulley is here to say it's time to pause and evaluate. Plus, did the Fed mishandle the banking turmoil? Yes, in about seven different ways, says Warden Professor Peter Concey Brown. He explains why it may be time to strip the Fed of its supervisory role. And speaking of the banks, do you buy them or steer clear of the trade? Our guest says stick with only certain names until the dust settles, and he'll tell us which ones. First, though, let's get the latest on these markets. Dom Chu over at the New York Stock Exchange. Hi, Dom.
2: All right. So, Kelly, we've got some green across the screen, and it's been generally positive all day long. The outperformance, if you will, has kind of shifted a little bit throughout the course of the day. But the Dow Industrials up about 160 points. And just to give you an idea of where the highs were, at the highs of the session, it was up about 349 points. So we've roughly halved our gains so far in the Dow. But the S&P trying to go back up towards that 4,000 mark, 39.79, up about two thirds of 1%. And the NASDAQ composite now taking that leadership role up about one full percent, 110 points to the upside, 11,785. Now, if you're taking a look for a thematic trade that's developing on the even more bullish side, at least in today's trade, check out the action in in solar stocks in general. Canadian solar, you can see up about 32% over the course of just the year-to-date period. But on that today, Enphase Energy, Canadian Solar, two of the bigger trades intraday that are very positive to the upside there. Canadian Solar on a more positive earnings report and Enphase carrying over from yesterday's gains with some of that analyst coverage picking up some steam. So keeping on those solar stocks. And then if you take a look at some of the big regional banks, Kelly, I know it seems like a broken record. But we have to keep talking about them because the volatility just doesn't stop. To this day, it's the upside. First Republic is up 43%. In trading today, PacWest Bank, Western Alliance, Charles Schwab, the regional bank ETFs, KRE, all seeing some upside moves. We'll see if this is the stability that could kick off into tomorrow's Fed rate decision. Kel, back over to you.
1: Thank you, Dom. One year ago, more than four and five companies in the S&P 500 were citing inflation on their Q1 earnings calls. Today, that number has dropped, and now deflation is cropping up as a concern. Let's get to Steve Leisman with the results of the latest CNBC Fed survey. Please.
3: Hey, Kelly, yeah, respondents to the latest CNBC Fed survey doing what you think they ought to be doing right now is trying to figure out what the current banking turmoil means for both the banking industry, the Fed, and the broader economy. Here are some of the results. 78% say it will be disinflationary or deflationary. 14% say it has no impact and 7% saying it could potentially be inflationary, so chalk that one up, give the win to the disinflationary side of things. What will it mean for the banks? 100% say it'll mean money moving from smaller, larger banks. 97% say tighter lending standards, and that's probably where the disinflationary call comes from. 93% say it'll mean reduced profits for the banks. Why? Because 72% say... Higher deposit rates must be paid. Now, as for their support of respondents for what the government did, 62% say it was right to back up the Silicon Valley Bank, and signature uh, with the government intervention. But 52% say support for, say oh, only 52%, sorry about that, support future bank failure protections. Why? Well, here's some of the commentary. Uh, One one respondent says it may not be that palatable, but not guaranteeing uninsured deposits serves to guarantee that there will be runs on many more banks. That is clearly a greater evil. Another respondent says the government has eliminated any market discipline in the banking system. A lot of concern about the moral hazard there. As for what they think the Fed will do with rates tomorrow, 72 percent say the Fed will hike by a quarter point. But only 52 percent, Kelly, think the Fed should hike by a quarter point.
1: Steve, stay with us as we bring in our next guest, who says the Fed needs to throw in the towel, not just on this week's rate hike, but on the whole rate hiking cycle. Let's bring in Paul McCauley, adjunct professor at Georgetown's McDonough School of Business, former chief economist at PIMCO. Good to have you here, Paul. Welcome. Thank you, Kelly. You know, people were pounding the table to hear from you. So I'm glad uh, to see you because the Minsky moment and talk and speculation thereof is making the round again. You probably saw this. Uh, I think it was Morgan Stanley uh, saying, look, we got to watch out at times like this because these things can quickly come to a head. So um, is that the kind of stance that you're coming from, is you've got to be careful not to break things?
4: I don't think a Minsky moment is going to happen, but I think it's a fat tail that's gotten larger. Uh, And that informs how I look at where the Fed is right now, is this shock, as Steve's uh, survey was showing, uh, is universally looked at as a disinflationary shock. Uh, And at the same time, uh, you've got the situation uh, of uh, increased fragility in the system. So when you're looking at it from a risk management perspective, I can't come up with a table-pounding reason or a non-table-pounding reason for tightening tomorrow. I recognize that the marketplace is discounting that, uh, but I look at this as the end of a Incredible tightening cycle that is gripping uh, the financial system and the economy. Enough is enough. Enough is enough. So, yeah.
1: you know, listen, I, I vehemently agree with you, but I'm nobody. So, you got to explain to everybody out there, Paul, who says, you know, we have to keep going because inflation, we have to keep going because the UK did it, we have to keep going because the economy is still solid. We have to keep going because Foot Locker. We have to keep going because Nike. Explain to them why you feel this way and why pausing right now isn't just bailing out uh, people at Credit Suisse who are still gonna get their bonuses this year.
4: I think taking a timeout now is the right thing to do, fundamentally with respect to the Fed's mission. It has a mission of price stability. It has a mission of financial stability. And most of the time we look at them as two circles. But right now I look at them as a Venn diagram. We're living in The oval and the risk are skewed to too much of a good thing on the disinflation and also failing on the financial stability. And I don't think they will. uh, But when I look at it from a risk management perspective, all of this notion that they've got to tighten to prove uh, their bona fides on inflation just doesn't cut the mustard with me.
1: Steve, if you can give us a moment, let me just bring in Rick Santelli. We got the results of the 20 year bond auction Uh, demand a little bit weaker maybe than we might have expected. Rick, how'd it go? Uh,
5: Charlie minus. C minus is the grade for demand straight up at 1 Eastern. Let's go through it, Kelly. It was $12 billion reopened 20 years, so. Technically, it was 19-year, 11-month securities. Uh, all the metrics were roughly in line. A couple of stood out. Uh, one on the weak side that was indirect at 67%. 10 auction average at 72. That was the lightest since October of last year. And direct bidders like mutual funds, pension funds at 21.1 was the best since March of last year. But it all comes out in the wash. It tailed about a third of a basis point. And some of the other metrics, as I said, could have been a bit better. Uh, I do think, though, that with the Fed meeting tomorrow, it doesn't surprise me that this was a middling auction. And as you look at the intraday, you don't see much movement, which goes along with the idea. And if you look at a year-to-date, the 20-year real quick, Kelly, uh, a couple of things should jump out at you. We didn't take out the fall high yield close. We only did that in twos and threes, neither of which of those maturities are still above those levels. And with regard to what the Fed may or may not do, it certainly seems as though the market has 25 priced in. Whether that's right or wrong almost doesn't make any difference at this point. Back to you.
1: Uh, <laughs> except it makes all the difference. No, I know you know that, Rick. I know what you're saying, though, about the market. It's clearly made up its mind. <laughs> as I turn back to Steve Leisman, Steve, which group of people meeting in Washington is more consequential right now, the Fed or the uh, the heads of the major banks who are, are reportedly gathering there as well to try to hash out a response?
3: I think they're all interrelated. Let me just point out, Kelly, from a personal standpoint, I'm glad I was never a student of Rick Santelli's because <laughs> he grades very tough. I'm surprised... Anybody in this world where everybody's scrambling for short-term liquidity, that anybody's going out uh, extended on the the, the, the 20-year horizon, uh, especially with a 253 bid to cover. Um, but I think that getting the banking system uh, on better footing is a key part to allowing the Fed to do what I think it wants to do, what, what Paul McCauley thinks they will do errantly, which is to raise rates. I think they want to do that quarter. I think also the market Kelly is giving giving them that quarter, you're up at 80% probability. It is expected. So if it's priced in right now and these are the levels of the market, these are the levels of fixed income yields that they're getting with uh, expecting the Fed doing that quarter, I think Powell will take it. And what I think he'll do, Kelly, is he'll message that The uncertainty is very high around the band of what they're expecting uh, and and therefore probably withdraw guidance about saying, look, we have a point in our dot plot, but there's a lot of uncertainty around that. And we're going to wait to see what happens with the issue of financial stability and how disinflationary it is. And before you go back to Paul McCauley, just (laughs) understand he is not objective about the Minsky moment because he had a boat called the Minsky moment.
1: (laughs) That's why people want to hear from him on this. And to make sure they caught his answer, he said, we're not there yet, but the fat tail is getting a little bit bigger. Um, So, Paul, respond to what Steve said. And I might add the following observation, which is that for all of last year, the market arguably gave the Fed the rate hikes it wanted only for that to still blow up. So just because they're well telegraphed, just because, like Rick says, we're expecting it doesn't mean there's not going to be fallout from it being the wrong move over time.
4: I think that's true and also I agree with Steve that the market's giving uh, the Fed permission if you will to do what it intuitively wants to do tomorrow but the market is not giving the Fed permission to bless the existing dot plot must let much less taking the existing dot plot up uh, which has a peak rate north of five through the end of the year and when you look at the Fed Funds Futures contracts out uh at the end of the year and the beginning of next year uh uh what the market pricing is is totally out of line with what the Fed is saying with their dot plot. I know that Chair Powell has told us sometimes to take the dot plot with a grain of salt, but I think that's really where the rubber meets the road tomorrow is where are they going to put the dot plot? Are they going to rebuke the marketplace for the pricing they've done out nine months right. uh, and defiantly say, we're going to do the dot plot or not, or they're going to have uh, some type of rhetoric associated with uncertainty.
1: If they don't lower the dots, in other words, if they don't uh, blink and, and meet the market where the market is, what's going to happen, Paul?
4: I don't know is the honest answer, but what I do know is that if you have more conflict between the Fed's messaging and where the marketplace is pricing, that leads to an increase in uncertainty and volatility, and that's not particularly propitious for these particular times particularly given the fact uh, that the big part of the debate right now uh, is not Jamie Diming and then a private bailout and what the Fed's going to do. It's what Congress will or won't do with respect to expanding and modifying uh, uh, or the administration, uh, the uh, uninsured deposit regime.
1: All right. We'll leave it there. Gentlemen, thank you. Paul McCulley, a pleasure. Steve, real quick.
3: Yeah, I just wanted to say that that Paul is right, that we're at 436 on the back end of this thing. And if the Fed were to hike a quarter point and the market doesn't like it, you could have the long end of the curve suffer, or sorry, a rally while stocks would suffer as the market believes the Fed is making a mistake, which has basically been the call all along. There's that back end. I wanted just to illustrate what Paul was saying, all those cuts built in. And the question, just to illustrate what Paul was talking about, is that gap between the Fed at 5 and an 8 and uh, the market right now is quite high.
1: Oh, yeah, and and, uh, was even higher on on Friday. Guys, thank you. Steve Leisman, Paul McCulley. And don't miss our full Fed coverage beginning tomorrow at 1 p.m. Eastern right here on CNBC. We'll lead up to the 2 o'clock decision and the news conference at 2.30. Meantime, relief in those financial stocks is pushing them higher for a second day. And one of my next guests is thinking about buying the regional banks here. But the other warns that while the banks might be near-term tradable, he's not sure they're long-term investable. Joining me now, Michael Vogel saying this CapTrust CIO and David Ellison and is Hennessey Fund's portfolio manager. It's great to see you both. Uh, David, I'll start with you and you're, and you're the one, I believe, warning a little bit about whether these names are investable for the long-term here. So what are the caveats?
6: Well, I think the issue is that, uh, you know, the, the, I think everybody's kind of rethinking what the value of these deposits are. Historically, these deposits could be funded below treasuries, then you turn around and make loans above treasuries, and that was your margin. Um, And that's how these banks grew, again, the smaller the bank is, the more sensitive they are to the spread. But now I think because of the digitization of the system, which has finally gotten so big that it's made a difference, and you've seen that in these bank runs, there's no way that kind of money would have left the bank if you had to go into the branch, it all left electronically. And so people are looking at price, and frankly, uh, the, the bank products are not that good, meaning the yields are very low relative to treasuries. And so, you know, I mean, if you, if you have a bank, if you have a checking account, you're earning 10 or 15 or 20 basis points. I mean, it's a joke relative to what you can get. And it's gotten so wide that people are moving away from it. It's like, you know, a $10 cup of coffee at Starbucks. Nobody's going to buy it. And so we're in this situation now where liquidity is being drained out of the system. And the question is, what impact does that have long term? Because if you had to raise the cost of deposits to be competitive, it would severely impact the long-term profitability of the industry.
1: Absolutely. I know there's a couple names you do like in this environment. We'll come back to that. But, Michael, I'll go to you, where you're you're starting to maybe sniff or nibble. I don't know what action you've taken on these regional yeah. banks. Uh, for those at home who are wondering if they should be doing the same thing, what's the justification and where would you be looking to buy? <coughs>
7: well, it's all evaluation, right? And and it depends on your outlook and what the Fed's going to do. Uh, if the if the Fed has done its job, and, and we think they have, of, of sort of ring, ring fencing this thing and and minimizing and, and and you know sort of slowing down the contagion. Um, the, clearly, clearly, uh, the deposit issue and, and the issues just raised about about you know more mobility and, and quicker access to your money and all the rest are real. Uh, it's about valuation, and, and if if you think the Fed has done its job, um, there are some interesting interesting places to invest uh, that don't have some of those same dynamics at the same level, such as. Uh, yeah. Um, well, you know, for example, OZK, which is an Ozark Bank, uh, Bank of the you know, Ozarks,
1: um, big, big bank commercial real estate exposure, if I'm not mistaken. They,
7: they do, uh, they do, and you know, again, they're not, they're not. Um, banks clearly have taken on a, a higher level of risk here. The point being is that they're simply, um, they're simply cheap enough, and there's enough fear and loathing in the market that it's reasonable to think about. Making some investments in this area. I'm not saying load up your portfolio and sell everything else. Sell your Microsoft and your Apple and, and buy OZK. The the point being, you know, valuation plays a role here, and they've been penalized pretty significantly. And you're seeing that in the market the last couple of days as as the markets have calmed down and people are feeling a little better about where we stand from a bank run perspective. Sure.
1: So you mentioned a name like Ozarks. I know David, your focus a little bit different. Um, uh, MTB, CFG, NYCB. Which, if I'm not mistaken, is the bank that just uh, saw the surge yesterday after taking over Signature. Why these three?
6: Well, I'm trying to, you know, trying to lose, <laughs> trying to stop losing money. I think you're just trying to buy a <laughs> traditional franchise that is hopefully going to get through this cycle here. Because remember, the cycle is now, there's a rate cycle, there's a yield curve cycle, and obviously the yield curve has been has been difficult for the banks there is a potential uh, credit cycle to come. Um, and then you've got the constant sort of issue of, of digitization and consolidation. So I think you're trying to stay with the companies that can beat back that and have some chance of gaining market share uh, in, in this. And that's sort of the New York community, gained tremendous market share by right. taking advantage of a of a beaten up company and i think these other companies are in a position where they can take share they don't need failures they just need to say look we're bigger we're safer come work for us and so they acquire people at, at no cost uh, you know in a terms they don't have to pay a premium for them so I, I think we're in a situation now where there's a lot of uncertainty which again it's a nice trade i think michael's right some of these stocks became have uh, are cheap relative to history maybe they bounce a little bit more here but then you're going to be sitting on a Fed decision. You still have the yield curve. You still have credit concerns. You still have loan growth concerns. So there's a lot ahead of us that we have to work through. And I, I think from a relative po- point of view, why own financials when, when the, the economy is decent and there's so many other options out there to buy?
1: All right. Fair enough. We got to go, Michael. But in a word, you're still sticking elsewhere. You know, defend, I mean, like you are there any other names or any of the three that David just mentioned in financials that you would also be a buyer of?
7: We, we were we were actually really interested in uh, New York community bank shares uh, until it was up 37 percent yesterday. So then <laughs> that, that cooled our ardor a bit. So, uh, yeah, no, I mean, we're, we're there are opportunities. You need to be selective. You need to be careful about where we are in the cycle, as David pointed out. Uh, but we do think the Fed's doing the right thing and the, and the right job here. And at some point, you're going to get some value out of these.
1: Well, it's fascinating to hear from both of you in a very difficult environment uh, for banks in, in particular. Michael Vogel saying David Hennessy. we appreciate it.
7: Thanks, Kelly.
1: Coming up, while the Fed and the financials have taken center stage here at home, another big story is developing overseas. Presidents Xi and Putin meeting in Moscow for formal talks. Their joint statement released just a short while ago, saying relations have reached the highest level in our history and both calling for a halt to any steps that could push the Ukraine crisis into an uncontrollable phase. The Atlantic Council's Fred Kemp is here to respond. And as we head to break, here's a look at markets. The Dow about 200 points off the session high. Russell leading the rebound once again, almost 2% gain in the 10-year year
8: Yield 357. We're back after this. This is The Exchange
1: on CNBC. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Jenny! Welcome back to the exchange. Stocks are higher now after Treasury Secretary Yellen's reassurances that a baking crisis is contained. We're off the highs, though, by about 200 points on the Dow. Is the contagion risk really over? For the answer, one of my next guests says this is the chart to watch the XLF, this financial spider. It's sitting right now just above the $30 level, about $31.94 that was also the peak it hit before the great financial crisis and if it breaks below it could be a big warning sign for more let's bring in Carson Group's chief market strategist Ryan Dietrich and joining me here on set bespoke investment group's Paul Hickey welcome to both of you Good to be here. Ryan you've got well, cue the doomsday music we'll start with you and uh, and the XLF and is this one of your top concerns if we start breaking back below 30
9: yeah, happy March madness, Kelly. I mean, right. we think it would be. Now let's I don't, I don't have any doomsday music. I've got more optimistic music, let's be clear, because we think that 30 level, which was the pre-crisis, the great financial crisis, that should be a big area of support, right? And you talk about March. I mean, I've got my Xavier pen. I'm a Xavier fan, sweet 16. So good things can happen in March. The last 20 years Stocks have bottomed in March, right, 2003, 2009, 2020. We get it, negative things, but things were worse those times. Sentiment is actually about as negative now as it was some of those previous times, Kelly. So hmm. let's just remember that one final thing here. April, in a pre-election year, has been higher 17, less, 18 times. That's 94% of the time April's higher in a pre-election year. Lots of other factors, yes. But with that XLF at a big level, with negativity high, with some potential p- positive seasonals, S&P still up 4% for the year. s and is positive for the month of March. Things aren't great. But there are some positives out there, Kelly.
0: Paul, do you see it sort of the same way? So I think Brian brought up some. Uh, Brian brought up some great points. Just the fact is that uh, the market, the financials are down like fourteen percent over the last two weeks. The S and P is you know down a percent or two. Mm-hmm. So the the whole market isn't falling apart under the weight of the financials. Sentiment is very weak, and then you know just the leading indicators. Uh, we focus on the semiconductors. Uh, the relative strength of the semiconductors hit a 52-week high this, uh, this past Friday. Wow. And when you look back historically, that has always been a precursor for a positive market over the following 6 to 12 months. So that is those are some of the positives. The negative side of thing, you've had high-yield spreads come out a little bit. Mm-hmm. You've, you've had uh, breadth weaken a little bit here. And um, in in that respect, those are things you want to watch. You've had a slight expansion in the number of new highs. But, I mean, overall, things are going to stay volatile here. It, Secretary Yellen said things are contained. Right. We'll see. That's hopefully, hopefully that was, these were the last dominoes rather than the first dominoes. But um, even if that is the case, we'll probably see some uh, volatility going in the next few weeks. But if I were to come on and say this is the market's going to go higher from here, it's all over now, I think everyone would call me out for being a liar. Nobody knows. So we just have to play this out for, you know, for what it, you know, and watch it day by day and look at the signals that the market is, is, is giving us.
1: Absolutely. One comment I, I sort of want you both to, to react to, and Ryan, I saw you tweet about this, but I've heard this from a number of people both, on, whether it's Twitter, email, in, you name it, and they say the stock market is the best economic forecaster that they know. So going back a couple of weeks when, you know, some of us were talking all doom and gloom, they were like, listen, I take my signal from the stock market and it's had a pretty good year. So here's my question. That's always true until it's not, right? And, and even during this little banking crisis, like it's held up relatively well. So how, can you just talk through the dynamic of the market itself, the stock market itself, or maybe if you wanna go back to you know, commodity something, and at least Paul, like he mentioned with the semiconductors, what do you think the market is telling us here? Um, aside from the normal seasonals that we see? like What are the things that to you are are giving us a clearer read on what the next move might be?
9: Yeah, I love what Paul said. I mean, semiconductors, 52 week high versus the S&P 500. You look, we haven't had a recession two years after that's happened in history. you got industrials, 5% of an all-time high. You've got GE, not a recommendation of GE, but breaking out to five-year highs. Industrials are one of the most correlated um, sectors to the market. So it's tough for us to think this big recession is coming when semiconductors, kind of the new transports, if you will, and industrials are strong. Again, things aren't perfect. That's why when this choppy range, honestly been in the choppy range for almost a year now from the first time the Fed cut rates. And one more thing here, The 2.10 yield curve inverted last year on April Fool's Day. We've been hearing how bearish everything's been because of this 2.10 inversion. We're not ignoring it, but just look at today's existing home sales, right? I mean, I've been hearing for a long time how weak the economy is. We're not seeing it yet. Now, mm-hmm. credit is coming back. It's going to be tighter. I mean, we, we get those things, Kelly, but the consumer is still pretty strong, in our opinion. And if, if the yields keep coming a little bit lower, the Fed obviously is going to have the pivot, as we've all talked about a yeah. lot here. Um, those are positives, we think.
1: And lumber's up year to date, uh, for instance, Paul. So, and I love Ryan's comment about how semis are the new transports to some extent. And NVIDIA this whole hour has been you know, out with these headlines about all the work that it's doing on large language models. It's partnering with Amazon. It's partnering with Oracle. It's partnering with there I mean, this whole economy has a lot to, to thank NVIDIA for in terms of the way that, it, that it's holding us up and powering us forward. So where else would you be looking? I mean, the high yield spreads have started to widen a little bit. Um, just trying to figure out, you know, if there's a way beyond... You know, I look at the economic data and I go, it's pretty clear the leading indicators are telling us this thing is rolling over. I don't know if the market's just looking past that, if it's saying we're already anticipating the Fed response, for instance.
0: Well, so, you know, you look at the, you know, is the market looking past that? We did have a 25 percent peak to trough decline last year. So that's one thing to focus on. S- semiconductors, it's not just NVIDIA. Uh, you know, Just about the last I looked, every stock except for one or two in the SOX, this Philadelphia Semiconductor Index, is outperforming the S&P 500 um, so far this year. They're wow. up th- collectively. They're up four times more than the S&P 500. And sentiment has gotten very weak. So every single person you talk to says, look at what's going on. Things are so negative right here. Why isn't the market going down more? And so, when things are that negative and sentiments that negative, and people are expecting one thing to happen and the opposite of happens, that's when you have to take that into that's account. That's information, absolutely. So, so that's the. But looking forward, tomorrow we got the Fed, and you know, if the Fed does make a policy error and, and continues to overhike into this environment, then that could cause problems down the you road. I you think
1: they should pause in the last?
0: I, I think if you if you looked in a textbook, an economics textbook, and you saw two biggest. Two of the three biggest bank failures in U.S. history, a bank failed, forced merger in Europe. You saw the most volatile treasury market since the 80s. You saw record borrowing at the discount window. And then you said, you know, the next paragraph would be the Fed would be aggressively easing, not hiking. So, I mean, I think in that respect, what's the what's the harm in waiting six weeks to see how this plays out to go forward and, and, and see? If you look at inflation indicators, the trajectory of the way down that we've seen from the peak matches the trajectory up. It's like impressive. It's, so it's an upside down V. So if you look at all these indicators, the we've seen we've seen improvement in inflation. It's it, we need more to go forward. But we've had, again, tightening like we've never seen in four of decades.
1: Course. Ryan, you agree with that real quick before we go.
9: Yeah, I think inflation is is coming back faster. People give it credit for PPI last week, inflation expectations. Yes, CPI services are sticky. As everyone's been pointing out, though, <laughs> rents and things like that in the private sector has come down a lot. That's going to reach that's going to get to the government's data. So, again, I don't think the Fed needs to hike. I think they will do 25 basis points. But I don't think they need to
1: believe it there. Gentlemen, thank you. I appreciate it very All much right. today. This seems to be a regular thing. Pre-Fed, Ryan <laughs> Dietrich and Paul Hickey. Coming up, what if mansions were sold at auctions just like Monet's? It's what some brokers are doing. Thanks to slowing sales in the luxury real estate market, Robert Frank went to one of those high end auctions and will tell us whether the new strategy is paying off. The exchange is back after this.
10: From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com/slash-now.
1: Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Dow's about 200 points off the highs, but look at the Nasdaq. Its point gain almost rivals the Dow today. It's a 1.2% rise to drive us forward. Let's get another check as well on First Republic. Reuters is reporting the bank is considering downsizing if it fails to raise new capital. That's actually sent the shares higher. They've spiked up about 53% in the session. Now, $6.50. They're trading just under $19 a share. Let's get to Tyler Matheson now for the CNBC News update. Tyler?
8: Okay, Kelly, thank you very much. TikTok CEO posted a video on the platform this morning uh, asking American users to leave comments telling Washington lawmakers what you love about TikTok. He's scheduled to appear before a House committee on Thursday amid growing calls for the Chinese-owned app to be banned because of national security concerns over protecting users' data. The Norfolk Southern CEO, Alan Shaw, will be making a return appearance to Capitol Hill tomorrow before the Senate Commerce Committee will say the railroad is creating a long-term medical compensation fund and provide what he calls, quote, tailored protection for home sellers if their property loses value because of last month's derailment involving toxic chemicals. And the Democratic Senator Senator Elizabeth Warren is asking Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen to crack down on what she calls the ultra-wealthy's use of trusts to dodge paying their fair share of taxes. Kelly, back to you.
1: All right, Tyler, thank you very much. Coming up, the seven different ways the Fed dropped the ball on SVB. According to my next guest, he'll join me to explain right after this. Welcome back, everyone, from Biden to BlackRock, asserting that the current bank instability is not a repeat of 2008, which may sound reassuring. But if the solution to the great financial crisis 15 years ago was putting the Fed in charge of bank oversight, then what went wrong in 2023? My next guest says the Fed has mishandled the situation in about seven different ways, and either it, along with the Treasury, overreacted to the failure of Silicon Valley Bank, or the banking system is so woefully fragile that a single medium-sized bank will throw us into a Fed-declared financial crisis. Let's bring in Peter Conti brown He's a financial professor uh, at the Wharton School, and it's great to see you again. Peter, welcome.
11: Thanks so much, Kelly. Good to be with you. So
1: you do trace this to an issue of Fed oversight that uh, suggests what should have been done or should be done now.
11: That's right. I mean, the Fed oversight is of a group of people, and that's oversight of bankers. So the first recipient of of even more quotable ire should be on the bankers that mismanaged Silicon Valley Bank uh, top to bottom. But bank supervision is about the collaboration and sometimes the confrontation between government and banks over these very questions of risk management. And I think the Fed so far, based on the information we have now, which is limited, uh, we can say that the Fed supervisory pro- process is badly broken.
1: So all of that may be the case, and I want to circle back to it. But conceptually, it's interesting to to look at what happened in 2008 and say, uh, along with many other things, money market funds lost money and broke the buck. And there were some runs and people took their money out. We ultimately had to step in and backstop them. In 2023, who would have thought that all played out again? But in bank deposits, the banks were the ones who lost money. The depositors over 250K, we just didn't realize how much that had grown, They all took their money and ran, and is the simple solution to this basically a fix that that sort of keeps some guardrails in place for the risk they can take in exchange for the FDIC insurance they'll get?
11: I think that's exactly a a great approach. What I didn't hear you say is that we should uh, therefore apologize to these very wealthy people for the inconvenience they had for a few hours before they received their guaranteed government support. What we should be doing is right-sizing, as you say the kinds of risks that they're taking and the benefits they received. What they received was non-priced insurance ultimately from the government. And on top of that, a suite of financial services uh, that was valuable to them. Uh, And in exchange, they subjected uh, themselves initially and then all of us eventually uh, to outsized and asymmetric risks. So we need to get the regulatory and supervisory system uh, much better in place. And part of that is making sure that these insurance products, explicit or implicit, are, are well-priced in such a way that there will be buyers and there will not be buyers who decide that their risk management strategy would be better off without paying for those services.
1: And I guess the reason I raise it is to say if this can be fixed with a more or less a tweak by Congress, you know, changing the rules of engagement going forward to make sure that this doesn't reveal a systemic weakness, then how much of it really is the fault of Fed regulation? Now, I'm not trying to say they didn't fail. They obviously did fail. I mean, this was, uh, they there are problems that this bank flagged back to 2015 There was no risk manager in place for a while. There were issues. So it's more I'm just saying if I'm so cynical that I expect them to fail, isn't it better? I think this was an Aristotelian thing. It's sort of, you know, isn't it better to set up the law because we trust the law more than we trust the people who might be interpreting it?
11: So I like that invitation to uh, Nicomedian ethics. Here's where (laughs) I would say uh, we need to be a little bit more utilitarian. And it's not cynical to recognize that there's important government slippage in the clarity with which Congress and regulators can write rules. It's not cynical at all. In fact, we created an entire bank supervisory system to recognize that whether we're talking about Amazon or your local food truck, the government is not similarly situated to businesses everywhere. With banks, it gets a desk in the the building. And it gets to ask questions to second guess about risk management. The entire reason is because there's slippage on these very issues. The entire reason for bank supervision is that these rules aren't self-enforcing. What does it mean for a bank to be safe and sound? We don't even have any kind of sense so, of that. So well, I mean, super- we do have
1: a sense, though, because we saw the big banks and post-financial crisis were now you know, saying, hey, great job, everybody. And, and you're kind of riding to the rescue here. So clearly that that change did help. If we are going to strip the Fed of its supervisory authority, though, as, as you've kind of joked, you're getting close to doing, who should have that authority? What should that look
11: like? You know, you're asking the most important question, and that's why I'm not yet ready to support stripping the Fed. It's always the question of compared to what and compared to whom. The the reason why I think the Fed there there are all kinds of things that we could we could say and I I wasn't just being colorful when I said I thought the Fed failed seven different ways uh, I I have a list and it's getting longer <laughs> by the day uh, uh, one of the biggest issues here that affected Silicon Valley Bank and that may affect others enough to to justify if we can justify it, the designation of a systemic crisis is that the Fed's own monetary policy has increased and introduced more financial instability on the asset side of balance sheet. And if the Fed is not aware even of this, the Fed knows this conceptually, of course, this is banking 101, this is central banking 101. But what we don't seem to have is a lot of conversation across two sides of the house.
1: Mm -hmm, mm
11: -hmm. Uh, uh, The parents aren't speaking to each other. The bank supervisors and the central bankers doing monetary policy need to sit down and have a conversation, we are on this uh, on this trajectory of aggressive rate hikes. Yeah. And the central bankers thought, and surely this will be self-implementing because we are being loud and proud about the fact that this is happening. And it turns out that was not the case, at least not for all banks. Absolutely. Uh, the American GSIBs did really well on this. They completely rebalanced their asset sides, uh, asset side of their balance sheet. They, can, they, can, they sustain positive net interest income. But not all banks did. And that is a failure of the Fed's supervision uh, because uh, it was a an, uh, predictable and predicted consequence sure. of the Fed's monetary policy. And
1: I'm thinking maybe in the future, Humphrey Hawkins, you know, they sit the, the head of supervision next to the chair of monetary policy and say, both of you should be answering these questions or we have questions, you know, something to kind of um, maybe raise the, the profile of that role and, and have those conversations that you're emphasizing. Peter, thanks for your time today. Thank we you. appreciate it. Peter Conti Brown of Warden. Still ahead, art, wine, jewelry, and luxury homes. More mansions are heading to the auction block and will have the impact on the high-end housing market next. existing home sales surged last month, but prices also took a dip. It was the first year on year drop in more than a decade. And that was thanks in part to the luxury end dropping fast, according to our Diana Olick. That drop has some buyers heading to the block, the auction block, that is. Robert Frank, here now with that story. Tell us about this.
12: Well, Kelly, luxury sales, as you said, were down 45 percent in the most recent quarter. Wealthy buyers and sellers just staying on the sidelines right now until rates and prices stabilize. So more sellers are turning to auctions. Sotheby's auctioning off eight luxury properties in just one hour on Thursday night for a total of $38 million. The auction house invested in concierge auctions two years ago. Now they aim to sell mansions just like Monet's. Concierge sales up 15% last year to over $520 million.
9: There are buyers who are interested in purchasing and they don't have
1: a lot of real estate to look at right now. So an auction can create that momentum around all of those buyers and bring them all into one place at one time and allow them to compete to own the property that
2: they wish.
12: A little scary for sellers because all but one of these properties were sold with no reserve. So it means it sells to the highest bidder no matter what the price. Bids came from 14 countries. And this estate on Paradise Island in the Bahamas sold for $15.7 million. The buyer bid online against 15 other bidders. The other hot property, or cold this time of year, was this ski and golf chalet in Park City, Utah. It sold for $5.5 million with 12 bidders. Luxury homes in Malibu, St. Kitts, Nevis, and Spain also sold. And, Kelly, there are no contingencies, so you place the highest bid, you own it. No home inspection. Nope. I mean, so with
1: this this disintermediates normal realtors? Do they get paid for their involvement here? And, and by the way, I've always thought the traditional ho- house buying process was broken as it is. So you wonder if this could ever be extended.
12: It actually adds more fees. The the, <laughs> this, the, bu- uh, the seller pays the brokerage fee because it was listed. Huh. And then the uh, the buyer pays a 12% premium for the auction company. Wow. So it's pricey. But for the seller, they get the exposure, the marketing of the Sotheby's concierge platform. And they finally get a deal If this house has been sitting on the market for sure. years. They don't know what the price really should be right this gives them that discovery in a matter of minutes
1: that's fascinating robert thank you you. robert frank still ahead president xi and putin say their relationship is not confrontational to other countries but my next guest says putin's looking to china for a lifeline to continue his war in ukraine he joins us with what comes next after this quick break Russian President Vladimir Putin and Chinese President Xi Jinping holding a multi-day meeting in Moscow this week. It's aimed to strengthen relations between the two countries as Russia's war in Ukraine enters its second year. And the joint statement, out just about an hour ago, says they will deepen cooperation between their armed forces, but also asserts this does not constitute a military-political alliance. So what does it constitute then? Let's ask Fred Kemp. He joins me now. He is president and CEO of the Atlanta Council and a CNBC contributor. Thank you for coming in today. Great to be here. A lot to unpack in this statement. What jumped out mostly to you?
13: First of all, huge, huge meeting uh, coming at a time in history where Putin's on his hind legs in the war. He needs, he, needs, um, he, he needs China. So Putin in 2015, when asked whether he had allies, he quoted Tsar Nicholas II. Oh, sorry, Tsar Alexander A second. let me get my Tsars right. <laughs> uh, and he said, I have two allies, my army and my navy. Well, his military has failed him. Mm-hmm. And without China's support one way or the other, economically, but also indirectly, militarily, as they said, working with the armed forces, uh, Putin will not be able to continue his war. Uh, with that support, he can continue it, and a war of attrition serves Putin. So it's absolutely crucial. The other thing that's worth saying is it's Putin's desperation meeting Uh, she's opportunism so they do get along they do like each other but she is getting some cut-rate energy prices Mm -hmm. he's going to get some new markets uh, that he'll pick up in Moscow where uh, American companies European companies, other companies have stepped away. So you're going to see a real shifting of tectonic plates economically.
1: What are we to make of the reports that Ukraine is preparing for a big counteroffensive this spring? You know, they're amassing planes and uh, tanks and artillery. And if we know about this, surely Putin does as well. Yeah. Um, how much are the Chinese going to support that while at the same time we're hearing reports that the Chinese leader is reaching out to Ukraine's president possibly for a meeting? It's, they tried to broker, I think, something in the Middle East recently that they might have done so successfully. So are they taking sides with Russia here or, or are the Chinese simply trying to rival the U.S. in terms of kind of global power?
13: I mean, let, let's be clear. Russia is not a neutral party in this war. Russia is on the side uh, of Putin. There are two reasons for this trip for Xi Jinping in three days three hours of meetings today the one is to support Putin in this war so that he does not lose the war whether he wins it or not at this point he's tying down Western troops he's tying down the US Western support tying down the US the second is to portray himself as a peacemaker particularly the eyes of the global South which doesn't really like this war the one he's doing more in the shadows the support and the other, he's doing more in the, in the light of day and more publicly. And that, those are the two reasons. For but you trip. think
1: China's direct interest is in Russia winning this war?
13: I think direct interest in Russia not losing this war, uh, and uh, because What's that the also uh, the, the winning this war means they get all of Ukraine. It means they get control over Ukraine as a sovereign country. Russia has put together a 12-point peace plan, and the first is respect for uh, ter- territorial sovereignty and integrity. In the end, China will, it will be in China's interest that Ukraine survives, perhaps not with all of its, uh, all of its uh, territory back, but that the West does not get what it wants, which is a fully intact, fully sovereign, uh, fully free Ukraine. Because he then looks at Taiwan and wonders, well, if the porcupine strategy has worked for Ukraine, if Putin has failed in Ukraine, uh, my chances in Taiwan may be even more difficult. So he's taking lessons here for Taiwan as well.
1: That's very interesting. So do you think Russia has a shot at actually winning here? And, and do you think Ukraine does as well? I mean, they are certainly preparing for a big counteroffensive. I, think, I forget exactly how the Ukrainian president put it, but he said this will be the year more or less of our victory. Um, how likely is that victory?
13: So we'll talk about the Ukrainian side, then the Russian side. Ukraine is going to put together a major spring counteroffensive, and it's putting together everything it can to achieve that. So far, we're not delivering military support fast enough, ammunition fast enough, uh, long range fires, uh, Reaper drones, uh, many of the things that they need. uh, They don't have enough of, uh, but they're going to go ahead with the offensive in any case. Part of the reason for that is that Putin is weak at the moment. And if they can get more territory, right now Putin has 20% of their territory. Until they win more territory, they can't get a good peace deal from Putin until he sees he can't win. From Putin's standpoint, a war of attrition serves him. The West gets fatigued, Ukraine gets fatigued. We get into our uh, US elections where we're already seeing Governor Governor, Governor DeSantis not supporting the war. It gets a little bit messier. So uh, Russia has to play for time. And Ukraine has to play for speed.
1: Very well said. Fred, it's great to have you here. Like we said, especially on a big day like this. We appreciate it.
13: Thank you. It's good to be here. Fred Kemp
1: with the Atlantic Council. That does it for the exchange today. Next on Power Lunch, we'll have the chip name to buy if the Fed does start to sound dovish tomorrow. There's Tyler getting ready. I'll join him on the other side of this quick break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day. Same time.
10: Thank <music>